the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when we think of the global war on Christians, and I will tell you, having spent time with these people in everywhere from North Korea to Vietnam to communist China and parts of the Middle East that I can't even mention, to a person they've all reminded us, as I've said, you know, as I go home to America, what should I be telling fellow believers? They've all said to a person, don't forget us. Please pray for us. Oddly, none have asked for a cessation of the persecution. I think that's largely because there's there's a degree of spiritual maturity to understand that as we see outlined in the the book of Acts and certainly historically in the first century church, um, persecution is kind of a normative Christianity. In fact, what we enjoy in the West is a very different type of Christianity, certainly than what uh, the founding fathers of Christendom went through uh, all those years ago. That said, though, there are more things that we can and should be doing than just praying for them. And as John Allen on details inside of his new book, The Global War on Christians, um, we have a political blind spot on this topic, John, sadly. And I mentioned before the break, I always find it interesting how we'll consider Saudi Arabia to be one of our major trading partners. It certainly is when it comes to the commodity called oil. We will whisper a comment or two regarding, oh, something concerning human rights and the way women are treated there, but largely have nothing to say about the way the kingdom of Saudi Arabia treats Christians. Do we need to change this? Oh, of course we need to change it. Uh, and by the way, Saudi Arabia is a, is a fascinating case because, you know, when we look at Christianity in the Middle East, we tend to think of it as an endangered species. And, of course, you're absolutely right. You've mentioned the, the, the way the church in Iraq has been gutted, uh, the threats faced by the Coptic Christian community in Egypt, Syria, other parts of the map. Uh, you know, the, the estimate is that, that Christians were almost 20% of the population in the Middle East at the, in the middle of the 20th century, and uh, today they're around 12, and the projection is by mid-century they'll be 6. People talk about an exodus out of the region, and yet in Saudi Arabia, there is a rapidly growing Christian community. There are now an estimated almost two million Christians inside the kingdom, uh, a million and a half of them being Catholics, uh, and that they're not native Arabs, they're not native Saudis. These are basically so-called guest workers, you know, Filipinos, uh, Koreans, uh, Vietnamese, Nigerians, Lebanese, uh, and others who have been drawn to work in the domestic service industries and the oil and gas business. Uh, who are uh, basically three times discriminated against, one as impoverished, basically indentured servants, two uh, as lower-class ethnic minorities, and three as Christians. And I think on all three of those scores, we ought to be pressing Saudi Arabia to do a better job. Another case is um, North Korea. Now, I know North Korea is a bit of a sticky wicket, as the saying goes, because we're dealing with issues concerning uh, nuclear weapons there, which has been an ongoing battle and uh, and certainly one that will no doubt last for a long time to come. And yet even as Dennis, is it Dennis Rodman that's been in and out of the country, I think Dennis Rodman, uh, that's been flitting in and out of Saudi Arabia and concerning Kim Jong-un as one of his best basketball buddies, and yet nothing is ever said about the fact that 
just simply possess a Bible in North Korea comes with a sentence of death. Well, yes. I mean, the the anti-Christian animus in North Korea is so grotesque that if you even have a Christian grandparent, you are disqualified from holding senior office in the military, you're disqualified from political life, you're disqualified from leadership positions uh, in industry. Uh, There are tens of thousands of Christians in North Korea who are languishing in what amount to religious concentration camps. Uh, tens of thousands more have been disappeared over the years. Uh, it is a nightmare, which is why every year, and of course there are organizations out there that rank countries in terms of how hostile they are to Christians, North Korea routinely finishes in first place. I actually, I almost hesitate to talk about North Korea in some ways because it can seem so uh, surreally hostile to Christianity that people might think it's a kind of unique case. The truth is, North Korea is merely the most grotesque example of what is truly a global problem. Indeed so. I mean, and I've shared with listeners on this program the challenges that I've had traveling in and out of some of these countries, and at one point uh, narrowly became a guest of the uh, uh, of, of the of uh, Vietnam because of uh, involvement with Christians there. I mean, the the issues that you speak to inside of the global war on Christians are very real issues, and I'm delighted, John, that you've in such a concise fashion given voice to uh, these fellow believers around the planet. I guess that the big question I leave you with is. In terms of response, I, we mentioned earlier, certainly, to pray for them is, is first and foremost. What else can we do? How can we better engage um, on a political level some of these issues that's not our direct responsibility, but our elected officials in Washington, D.C.'s responsibility to say and do something about? Well, one, uh, in, in terms of the humanitarian level, we can support those organizations that are now and have been for years trying to deliver aid to Christians who are on the, on the firing line. I mean, in the Catholic world, there are groups like the Catholic Near East Welfare Association, Aid to the Church in Need. In the Protestant world, there is uh, open doors and, and like-minded organizations. So reach out to those folks and uh, and support them too. Uh, I think we can uh, do everything we can to raise consciousness about this issue. Uh, I mean, you know, God bless our Jewish brothers and sisters. If anywhere in the world today a swastika is spray painted on a synagogue, by tomorrow they will have raised the alarm in a way that the world simply can't miss. I think we Christians can steal a page from their playbook. Uh, and third, as I said earlier, I think we can demand that uh, that our leaders listen to the voices of, of minorities, including Christians, on the ground uh, in our foreign policy calculations. I mean, I, I frankly think it's unconscionable that we could have been on the brink of going to war in Syria without stopping to think how that might affect the people who have to live with the aftermath of it. Uh, and so on all those levels, uh, I think there's a great deal we can do. Absolutely. And you mentioned some of these fine organizations. Uh, Dr. John Wombrandt, who had been a guest in this program many years ago, uh, his organization, Voice of the Martyrs, has also done a lot sure, to, to raise great. awareness. And, and all good organizations, and certainly ones that, as uh, John Allen points out, we need to be supporting. Uh, we need to be sensitizing our representatives, as he points out. You know, it's one thing to say we're going to go in and drop bombs or, you know, uh, put the bad guys out of business. But there are often significant consequences that come to all of that. I mean, I, if we could understand how the church in Iraq has just been torn to shreds because of U.S. military involvement over there, would we rethink that position? I'd like to hope so. Much to pray about. It's a 
again, a fantastic book. And, John, we hope to get you back on again soon when we can spend some more time. John Allen, author of The Global War on Christians, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Anti-Christian Persecution, the newly published book, again, um, by Image Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We think often of what it means, the, the significance of, of the spiritual heritage that uh, many of us have, those that have a connection to the history of the church and faith um, through the faith of our fathers. And as much as we oftentimes ponder what that means, how often do we stop and think about the faith of not just our fathers, but the faith of our sons? The reality is that as much as the gospel message is timeless, we're seeing the way current generations react to it, and and most notably how oftentimes we're beginning to see a shift taking place, that while the faith of our fathers and that generation and maybe the current generation is strong, the faith of our sons and our daughters is on weak grounds. There is some new research out by the respected pollster, George Barna. In fact, he's been a guest on this program many times that would suggest that there is a frightening trend taking place amongst 20-somethings in our country today. And to get some insights on this topic, David Kinneman joins us. He has written a new book entitled, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. He serves also as the president of the Barna Group. And David, great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. You know, we always want to hear about uh, the enthusiasm of young people and their relationship with Jesus Christ. I know that fondly there's a good percentage of those listening to our conversation right now who found Christ uh, as young children or as teenagers and have continued on in faith uh, for years and years and years. And yet to begin to see that there is a trend taking place that isn't a very encouraging one, I I think ought to cause all of us to pause and ask the question, what's happening? If we understand that the God gospel is timeless, then what of Christianity today in the West, in North America, that suddenly is not maintaining the same appeal, so to speak, for those in that uh, special age group of late teens into their 20s? Well, what's challenging for us now is that the culture has changed so quickly over the last 10, 20 years that we make the argument in the research that essentially people are more enculturated than ever. They're more captive to our culture than we've ever seen a generation done so. And this is true of young Christians. This is true of young non-Christians. They have more access to all sorts of ideas and worldviews through technology. Uh, They have, you know, exposure to, uh, you know, sexuality and all sorts of things earlier in life. Media is giving them a certain sort of worldview and perspective. And so for those reasons, and many others, a lot of social changes, they're getting married much later, they're having children much later, they're responding to the divorce culture that the boomers largely, you know, enacted in our culture. And so for many reasons, they're, they're, they're disengaging from the church, they're disengaging from Christianity in some cases, and we do need to pay attention to this cultural reality and how is it that we actually raise young people of deep faith. Is this then less about perhaps a particular age group then on the on the continuum uh, david as it is suggestive of the church losing some of its grasp some of its influence then on culture 
Yeah, you know, it's really interesting you asked me that, because when you talk about this phrase, you lost me, we very intentionally titled it because that's the voice of the next generation about the church. You know, you lost me, I don't get it, I don't, I don't understand. And part of it's because they're so distracted, they're so busy doing other things. But I, I think you're actually really on point with that question in that what we're finding from a lot of our research is it's certainly true of the next generation and how we work with them, but it's also true of all of us in this culture, of any, of any generation, that we're more distracted, our attention spans are shorter, we have more, there's more things that are vying for our, you know, time and attention and mind space. And so I think it's more difficult for the gospel to go forward in this, you know, very abundant, um, pluralist, uh, you, you know, very, you know, very rich country that we have. And, and no nation has ever been able to really withstand the prosperity that, that America currently enjoys. I think that's the kind of question we need to ask ourselves is how do we disciple in that era, not just the next generation, but all of us. Well, I think not just the appeal, as you're suggesting, of, of all that uh, that uh, the culture, so to speak, has to, to offer in every sense of the word. <clears throat> but then, too, it strikes me, David, that, that relationships... Uh, have changed uh, pretty significantly. I mean, I, for example, having grown up as a product of the 1960s and 70s, having come to faith in Christ in the 1970s, um, it didn't take a lot of explaining to do when we talked about uh, what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to walk in fellowship with the very God himself. I mean, we were all in that era longing for a, a deeper, more significant, more satisfying relationship on, on the human level. So that, that meant something to us, and those were words and phrases that resonated with with the longing that we were seeking to satisfy. That said, look at the way things have changed for this generation that has grown up on uh, cable television and the internet and texting and you know, relationships today are about what you do on the backside of an iPhone as opposed to the level of, of, of contact, that the just pure human contact that we used to have has changed so radically. And so I would wonder if part of this is just the notion of how we do relationships has changed so much. Um, if I can't relate to a personal one-on-one conversation with my dad, because I'm used to doing all this stuff electronically, how can I possibly think about a personal one-on-one relationship with a God that I can't even see? That's, that's really well said. And when you think about it, so when you talk about a youth group or a college ministry, and in the past, 20 years ago, that provided a sort of extracurricular place for a person to have a relationship, uh, not only with God, but also with, with each other, with other Christians. And what we're seeing with the youngest generation of teenagers now, uh, young Christians, is that the youth group experience is even changing, in that they don't need the social network of the youth group like they did in the past. It's, it's really more about either their pursuit of God or their pursuit of other kinds of things. Um, you know, we're finding that they're their engagement in youth ministry is, is, is changing. And I think this goes to the heart of it that, you know, what we found in this research is that it's not enough for us just to have young people who are engaged in church services and, and really as parents or youth pastors or as uh, any kind of leader within a church, we need to do a better job of recognizing that the signs of faithfulness aren't just attendance at a program, that in fact, as we're living in an information world, I think that Jesus is getting lost in the data stream of all the, the tweeting and Facebooking and digital activities that we have. And just as you say, it's hard enough to have face-to-face relationships with others. I think this idea of connecting with a real and holy and personal God is actually really 
changing for this generation. And, and unfortunately, most churches and parents say, well, you know, my, my young person is there, they're, they're attending faithfully, and that's not, in my mind, enough of a measure based on all this research of faithfulness. It's part of the problem, too, as we suggested here, David, that the way we do relationships, um, certainly in the West today, is changing pretty drastically. It's easy for people to hide behind the facade of Facebook and MySpace and so-called social media, where you can kind of, uh, you can be as vulnerable or not as you choose to be. You can be as real or not as you choose to be, and when suddenly you're now trying to confront young people with a real, vibrant, true, pure, um, all of the bells and whistles and, and, and sort of a facade, all stripped down, personal relationship with God, I would, I would wonder if we couch it in the terms that we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if that doesn't scare a lot of young people today, because they look and say, I don't want that. I don't want anybody to know me that, that real or that intimately or that personally. I would rather hide behind behind the facade of who I want you to think I am, because I'm too afraid to show you who I am. Yeah, I think that's true, and, and we learned from our research that a lot of these young people feel as though they have to live split lives, uh, split personalities between their church self, their digital self, their family self, their school self, and and so this era of you know helping, and, and this is an opportunity for families and churches and all of us who care about this next generation to help reconnect the soul and the person and the heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus talks about. And and so I think there's a great opportunity for churches, but this idea of split souls, um, you think about that even in terms of sexuality, we see this from the research that many young people feel split. They, they have to be one person in church, traditionalist and buttoned up and, you know, uh, careful about what they say, and then something else entirely when it comes to their sexual, you know, habits and lives. And so we, we have to do a lot of work. I mean, there's a lot of things we should be concerned about with this generation, and I think there's a lot of things we ought to be concerned about, about how we as the church respond in a healthy way to the culture and how we prepare students to live in that culture. Indeed so. And the other thing, too, is, you know, oftentimes not only is there this sense of a split, as you suggest, but then I think a lot of young people feel as if they're being forced to choose one or the other. It's like the faith of my fathers or uh, whatever option B is. And we'll talk more about this aspect. We continue our conversation tonight with David Kinneman. He is the president of the Barna Group, a new book out that is an eye-opener. It's called You lost me why young christians are leaving church and rethinking faith as this edition of lifeline continues and now back to lifeline with craig roberts we're back to our conversation with David Kinneman. David is the president of the Barna Group, Barna Research. You're very familiar with the work of George Barna. They have taken time to, to study, in particular, the faith of our sons and daughters and to see in what direction all of that is headed. And all of this revealed inside the pages of a new book, by the way, entitled You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church. David, as you indicated, and we were talking a bit before the break, what's really happening here is that the, the, as the church is losing its influence on culture today, and as the stranglehold of the power that said culture has on young people today is is ever increasing. I mean, it's clear to see how this is being set up as kind of a, a perfect storm, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, and I think it's this whole research project, I mean, I'm interested in it as a researcher, I'm also interested in it as a parent, I'm interested in it as a 
a pastor's son who, who grew up in the church. And it's really, for me, helped me understand how do we actually work with this generation in the midst of a changing culture. And, you know, the title is strong because that's the, what young people say about the church, but it's really a very hopeful project about how do we actually reconnect with this generation? How do we actually learn faithfulness in a new context? We use the story of Daniel, um, you know, from Scripture, where you know he was taken out of a, a comfortable social setting, you know, as a young Hebrew, and taken into this culture of Babylon. We learn about that in the book of Daniel in, in Scripture, and uh, we use that story really often in the book as a way of understanding what does it mean to be faithful in an entirely new context. And I think that's what we're facing now with this generation of young Christians. All right, let me give you an example. This is right out of the front pages here. Uh, in fact, a story that appeared on ESPN regarding uh, Tim Tebow. Everybody knows that he's been taking some flack. Uh, most specifically recently, former Broncos quarterback Jake Plummer uh, in a radio interview that uh, basically said that uh, he wished that Tebow would curb, quote, his references to Jesus and his faith, um, saying effectively, we're getting the message. You don't have to continue to remind me time and time again. Um, th- through the lens of this research, uh, talk to me about that scenario. Yeah, so what's interesting about this is there's both the trend of you know young people losing their faith, and there's also what we call a counter trend that we describe in the book of young people who stick with faith and why. And and you know I think Tim Tebow is an example of a young twenty something who is very out front with his faith, who certainly has never you know lost his faith such that we know or at, you know that we can we can document um, at this point. But when you look at, at um, the culture, what is so interesting about what's challenging for young Christians is that their peers are more skeptical of ever than Christianity, and many of these peers actually had backgrounds within either Catholicism or Protestant Christianity. And so I think, I think that's a great example of, you know, here's an example of the counter-trend in Tim Tebow and the, the, the public nature of his faith. We see many other people who are in Hollywood, who are in music, who are in business, who, you know, are very much passionate about uh, the Church and about Christianity. Um, but what's different that we see now compared to the previous generation and generations, say, of the 1960s and 50s, is that there's a bigger gap now between young Christians and their peers, and they're they're having to reach further in order to explain the nature of Christianity. And and you know the one thing we might say is that as, as much as we should su- support and applaud Tim Tebow's public upfront faith, you know what is it about that that's going to transform culture? You know, it's not just because he acknowledges Jesus that that he's going to be transformational. It's because of the quality of his life and other aspects of his vocation and calling that people will respond to that message. So it's important for us to recognize the skepticism of this generation as well. Is there any attraction to this generation that looks at something like that and says you are repeatedly subjecting yourself to criticism? by doing this. And we've all seen him kneel and pray after a touchdown or uh, during key moments during the game. Uh, It's very attention-getting. He is being ridiculed for it. it. Does it work into the logic of this generation as we're trying to understand them better, David, that some people would say, you know, if you're willing to voluntarily subject yourself repeatedly to that kind of criticism for your faith, that there must be something awfully special about your faith? I mean, do, do young people draw that conclusion? Yeah, they do, and they're looking for things that are that matter in the world and to their own lives and to their own sense of meaning and their own spiritual journeys, and, you know, this is where I think this is a generation that's very interested in truth and very interested in things that matter. 
they're also highly narcissistic and, and distracted, so it's sometimes difficult for us to get their attention on things. But I think they respond to seeing people that are sold out to any cause. I think the difference that we should keep in mind, too, is that they're a very diverse generation. They have come to expect that they should respect and you know, give anybody of any faith, of any sexual persuasion, of any ethnic background, I mean, of any, of any background at all, that it, you know, they, they fully expect that, that everyone is equally you know, you know, right and equally valid at all times. And so there's a certain sense in which not many of these young people that we interview are willing to take huge risks for their own, you know, their own uh, positioning, their own brand in the world. And I think that's one of the things that you know, is, a, is a challenge for them. They're, they're not necessarily willing, like Daniel in, in the story of the lion's den, uh, necessarily willing to you know give up their life on behalf of their faith and and that's that's a, an interesting challenge I think we face with this generation. We also have a, a generation I think David that is very interested in sort of leaving their mark on things. I mean we, we're seeing this I think to a degree with some of not all by a long shot but some of uh, the Occupy Wall Street protesters or we think of people that get involved in things like you know uh, protecting the planet and animals and things of this sort. It, it seems to be a generation that very much is engaged in wanting to make a difference. Do we do we couch some of the impact of Christianity in in those terms so that there is that sense of attractiveness to it, or, or, or to young people buy it, rather? Well, I think you're right that there's a real sense of, of wanting to make a difference in the world, and they're, they're very much socially conscious. But what we find in our research is some of that is only skin deep for these young people. You know, they, 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 it's really cool to care. In some ways, we could say that we've effectively made them consumers of causes rather than uh, what I think Christ calls us to is to be really spent on behalf of those causes. Yeah, it's funny you mention that. I, over the uh, the weekend here, I saw some pictures of Matt Damon, who's apparently filming a new movie down in Mexico, and he's been very much in favor of PETA and urging people, you know, if you can be a vegan, you know, more power to you, and very much on that side of, you know, protecting animals, etc., etc., and here he's captured attending a bullfight in Mexico City, and I wonder what uh, his PETA friends would say if they saw that. Yeah, there's all these inconsistencies that, you know, we inevitably come to. And I think this is the message of one of the things that Jesus talks about in his ministry is this the fact that there's so many inconsistencies in our efforts as human beings that it's impossible for us through our own through our own, you know, try harder ism to just simply work harder at saving the planet or work harder at, at addressing these causes. And I think my my challenge to us as Christians would be in, in understanding this next generation that we don't want to just get them involved in a cause to change the world because it turns out, as we learn from the gospel and from, from the Bible, that you know there's nothing new under the sun. And, and in fact, you know, we, we need to have a healthy reverence for the Lord's work that we should care about these, these issues, but we, we, we can't solve them in our own human effort and power. And yet at the same time, if our, if our faith is simply about you know, believe these these things in order to get to heaven one day and convince everyone else to get to heaven because of your faith in Christ. If it's if it is simply and only about evan- you know sort of getting people saved and salvation, I think it also does this this generation a disservice. That they they really are called and interested in uh, in understanding how their faith gets worked out in the world. And so we owe them, I think, that the depth that 
following Christ, that following the gospel means we're concerned about eternity, but we're also concerned about how we live our lives and the quality of, of how, the kind of impact we have on our neighbors and on our workplaces and on our families. We're talking about a new book, You Lost Me, and you know this really ought to sit on the shelf better put on the desk, of um, every youth minister, youth pastor, every senior pastor, everyone who's engaged in organizations like uh, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, uh, Youth for Christ, and so many others, as we gain a better understanding through the research of the Barna Group, uh, the attitudes of where young people are today, and most importantly, what we can do to get a better job at engaging the culture, capturing the culture for the cause of Christ, and as a result, not just reaching young people for Jesus, but keeping them for Jesus. Toward that end, David Kinneman, author of this new book, are, are there some of the trends that we're seeing, too, that some people feel as if, uh, young people feel as if they have to make a choice, that it's either between um, kind of launching out on my own identity or embracing mom and dad? religion, or even in some cases uh, with debates over everything going on concerning uh, science and bioethics and technology, even sometimes uh, young people may feeling as if they have to choose between belief in God or science? Yeah, I think throughout this book and throughout the research that underlies it, we saw this really this choice that young people felt they had to make between their friends and their faith, between being uh, a young scientist or someone in medicine and their faith between choosing to doubt or, or being comfortable with the doubts that they have and being faithful. Um, so many different places where young people feel like they, they have to choose between being the Christian they're called to be or being the person who they are. And, you know, that's, that's a challenge. I think, again, throughout Scripture you see this tension where we, we have to live, you know, in the world but not of the world. This is something that Jesus prays for his followers in John 17, the in but not of tension. And I think that's the tension that every generation has faced. I think it's more pressing than ever now with this generation. And throughout the project, again, we talk about the reasons for disconnection, but we also talk about the reasons for reconnection. So, for instance, when we talk about having to choose between our faith and our friends, we make the argument that really the church has done an an inadequate job of talking not just about the the singular salvation through available through Christ, but how Jesus himself had this heart for outsiders and, and really wanted to pursue people around him. You know, he was, he was notorious for hanging out with sinners. He had a heart for people that were lost. And I think this generation feels as though the church experiences and their parents and the sort of the, the nice, comfortable Christian way of life pushes them to choose um, a, you know, a, a way of life where they, they have to choose the safe, comfortable religious life or exclude their friends. And, and really, I think it's a false choice. And in so many of these cases, we learn that the choice between science and faith, between friends and faith, they're false choices that we need to reframe for young people. For everyone who has a heart for young people listening right now, whether they're engaged in full-time ministry or just love the Lord, love young people, what would you say is, is the most significant message um, underlying you lost me that you want readers to take away from that can kind of be an action item for the church? Well, I care about this generation enormously. I love the church. I want to see them together. Um, and what we learned is that in so many cases, the, the friendships, the relationships that we think we have with this generation, they're not as deep as we imagine them to be. And I was also shocked to find how often these young people have no idea how their faith really intersects their vocation or their calling or what God calls them to do. I mean, as an expression, only 16% of young Christians 
said they knew how the Bible applied to their field or interest area or profession. And we need to do a better job. I mean, we owe this next generation so much more to prepare them to live in but not of this culture. And I think the research really gives you some tools, not only to understand the disconnections, but really to understand how do we reconnect, how do we learn from this generation and serve them as God pursues them and their heart and their potential service in the future for the kingdom. Some insights inside the pages of You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. Nobly published by Baker Books, available to bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get information on the web. David Kinnaman, that's K-I-N-N-A-M-A-N, davidkinnaman.com. David, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. You know, as we look at issues like um, sports, certainly this is a great pastime for us to kind of get a, a sense of enjoyment and escapism. But we've also come to understand that sports can teach us many valuable things, a teammanship, endurance, uh, certainly uh, the sense of uh, personal success and performance. But we're also discovering at many levels that sports can also teach us some deeper, more enduring lessons. Joining me now is Dr. David Cook, president of the Texas Space peak performance firm, bridging the gap between sports and business performance. He is former director of Allied Sport and Performance Psychology at the University of Kansas and the author of the best-selling book, Golf's Sacred Journey, Seven Days at the Links of Utopia. And Dr. Cook, great to have you on the program with us. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, I appreciate it very much. This must be an exciting time for you as well, now seeing your book, Golf Sacred Journey, making the leap from uh, print to now the big screen with release across the country of Seven Days in Utopia. Tell us a bit about uh, the story here that is behind this film. Well, the story takes place in a little community in Texas called Utopia, and uh, there's a really, I guess, minimalist, you'd call it a minimalist little golf course here, nine-hole golf course. It's built around a cemetery. And uh, one day when I went out there and saw this beautiful cemetery next to this really pathetic driving range and golf course, I just felt the sense and the urging from the Lord to, 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 to look deeper, to notice some things. And I began to notice the significance of how profound the simple was. And I felt like the Lord just said, this is a place, write the book. And, you know, a day before that, I had no idea how to be writing a book. So I went home, got my computer out, put my hands on it. And about eight hours later, they stopped. I just felt like there was a real download of a story. My background is in sports psychology, as, as, as you mentioned a minute ago. And so I was able to take my experience with this beautiful little spot in the world and create a story that was a different way for me to speak and to share the ideas that I've been given that I think will help people not only in performance but in life. And uh, what came out was this book. It was, it was a pretty amazing experience and an uh, incredible journey. Now, the story here is a story of Luke, uh, who I understand is a talented young golfer making his way along the pro tour uh, in, in, in some respects. I mean, there are certainly big figures that we know of, names that we're all familiar with in the world of pro golf today that might come to mind out of whose life at certain levels tends to kind of mirror some of this. But ironically, along, too, with that, uh, escaping some of the pressures of the game and uh, finds himself along the way stranded there in Utopia, Texas. What are some of the key lessons that you're hoping viewers uh, following the readers to your best-selling book, Golf's Sacred Journey, now with the new film, Seven Days in Utopia. What are some of the lessons that you're hoping they'll extract and walk away from beyond just a good time at the movies? 
Well, yeah, this is way more than just a good time at the movies. One of the things we try to teach, you know, I really want to share some ideas about performance that I think will help people. But the main, main point there is that life is bigger than performance. It's way bigger than the scoreboard. And uh, many of us get knocked out of our game or taken out of our game by the scoreboard or by successes and failures. And this young kid had a meltdown. And he spent seven days with an older, wiser gentleman that used other elements in the environment, like fly fishing and flying an airplane and uh, painting and picture washing and things like this that drew him out of, sort of out of the game of golf, but taught him deep principles about how to play better and also how to live his life deeper. And it culminates in the scene in the cemetery where he really challenges him about what's Septaf going to say and what's you know, why is he doing what he's doing? Changing the kid's life. And then he reenters the world of performance with a new attitude, a new heart. And it, the end of the movie really gives us a picture of what performing as a Christian would look like. What is it? What is the purpose and how can God use that in our life? So it, it, uh, it's a full circle. You know, we, incre- we included the faith in there and, and also some teaching from the sports psychology. And even though there's a lot of golf, there's, it's really, more of a life story than just a golf movie, for sure. Yeah, that certainly struck me in watching the trailer. I, I thought, you know, there's aspects of this that go beyond simple lessons that we can utilize, you know, whether it's on the golf course or on the field, uh, that, that certainly are applicable toward performance in the arena of sports, but on the grander picture, at a deeper level, lessons that I think, uh, Dr. Cook, are applicable to, to what we do in life, given the fact that, you know, while the scoreboard might be one measurement of success on the field, there are other scoreboards, so to speak, that we use in life that, that sometimes as we're adding up the score might tend to be pretty discouraging. And so out of that, you draw a lot of very strong biblical principles to help lead people along the way. Absolutely. And um, they're, they're, it, the whole movie is built around biblical principles. And But it's not a heavy-handed movie. And, and in fact, I think that it's one that we prayed about deeply when we were making this that you can take your friends and family to. Um, and it's, a, it's an opening. And the movie is the beginning. There's, a, there's an opportunity at the very end of the movie for people to continue their journey that will lead them to another another option for their life. So this is unlike most movies. Uh, it's a beginning, not an end. And I think it was so well cast. I don't think we told our audience this yet, but Robert Duvall plays the, the wise mentor in this movie. And he's... Uh, you know, he's one of just about every, probably all your listeners, one of at least in their top ten favorite actors of all time. He does a great job with this. And Melissa Leo just won a Best Supporting Actress. She's also in there. Um, and Lucas Black, who is a real player, a very good golfer, is in our movie. He was uh, in Sling Blade and Friday Night Lights and is, is authentic. So it's the most authentic golf movie, even though I'm telling you it's not just a golf movie. It, everything's authentic about this movie and real. You can feel the, you know, you can feel this community of utopia and you can feel the experience as you watch this. And Duvall, of course, no stranger to um, spiritually based or, or thematic films, has performed in other uh, films that have that same kind of feeling to them or genre about them. Uh, and and what, what encourages me about a film, as you point out, of this sort, and that is that it's not just a beginning, a middle, and an end, uh, but as you leave the film, as you walk out of the theater, I think many viewers, as much as they would be after having read the book, Golf's Sacred Journey, walk away with a sense of, of the opportunity to get fresh beginnings. Uh, to move past some of the, the maybe bad choices we've made in the past and find new life, new direction moving forward into the future. 
Yeah, they, they have an opportunity to, to leave this movie and begin all over. Or, as we say in the movie, the uh, young man buries some old lies that he was living by, like his score, was his identity was based on his score, um, that uh, um, how he played, uh, told everybody about who he was as a person. And I think all of us get caught up in that, you know, sort of, kind of that the the uh, the arena of being judged by others according to what we do and so this is a there's a real there's a real moment in this movie where he gets it and and do du, and duval delivers it so well um to get him sort of out of the game of the world and into the game that god called us to yeah that, that whole idea of success in life uh not always measured of a man by uh, you know how much money you make or how good your golf score might be uh manners and, and fashions in which normally the world measures success but rather a measure of the man is is much deeper than that it sure is and you know that's a that's a message that, you know the, the, i guess the main message of this movie is that most people are looking for more in their life. They're, they're, they're searching for something, the meaning that's got to be deeper than, you know, what they see around them. And the answer to that more is in this movie. And uh, I, I think that's a universal question. What, what else is there? You know, there's got to be more. Uh, it, it goes beyond just the typical couple of hours in a movie theater escapism. Uh, it, it walks away. You walk away, I think, with a sense of being encouraged uh, and can be a, a wonderful tool for reaching people that are struggling. And I think, uh, Dr. Cook, in light of what's going on in the world around us today, we know a lot of folks that are struggling, uh, challenges at work or economic problems, uh, layoffs, all of these things. And people are looking to go deeper and higher and, and find more significant meaning in life where they can measure their success beyond just what they've done in the world of sports or business. And finally, Dr. Cook, the book I would imagine available through Amazon.com if folks would like to pick up a copy. They can. It's also available at linksofutopia.com, linksofutopia.com. And we have so many uh, interesting things on that site for people uh, like me walking around in Utopia and sort of showing people around. Go to that site. That's a, that's a good one to to begin the engagement problem. Linksofutopia.com. Dr. David Cook, thanks so much for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Thank you.